0: Well, before we uh, read our scripture passage for this morning, one of the things that we as a church are passionate about is multiplying and developing leaders. Uh, and we, we want to do that in every capacity, every vocation, every calling. Uh, and one of the ways in particular that we do that is through our pastoral residency. Uh, if you've been around any length of time at Christ Community, we are uh, a bit of a, like a teaching hospital. Uh, we uh, recruit uh, seminary graduates to come, spend two years with us, and then we send them out uh, to serve the church all across the country. Uh, and many of you have grown to, to love uh, Jonathan Neef and his wife Hannah. Um, and in a moment, he's going to come and share God's word with us. He's in the middle of his residency, so we have a year left with him. Um, we always call him Johnny Neath around the, the office. It sounds more like a rock star name, so you can do that if you want. He'll thank, he'll thank me later. Um, but let me, let me read our, our passage for this morning. Acts chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it. And fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. and me be seated.
1: Well, thank you, Nathan. It, it truly is a privilege to be here. I, I'm so grateful for the residency, for this opportunity to be to be learning and to be and uh, to be growing here with you. So thank you and even had me thinking about my time here and just the, the way you guys have, have welcomed my family and the fact that even that my daughter has been born while being here. And I thought, boy, if I got up here and didn't show a picture of Claire, I'd probably be an epic fail. So I only got a little picture of Claire. She is. She's 10 months. Um, she's a lot of fun. She's discovering her voice right now, which is a lot of fun. Um, but, but honestly, the weight of, of a daughter has really um, it's kind of rocked my world a little bit. The, the, the thinking of, I don't want to just care for her now, like in, in these needs, I have to be thinking about all these needs of the future that are, that are coming up. And one of the first things I did, maybe it seems crazy, but I got life insurance, right? I was thinking, how do I care for her even if I'm gone? And again, I, I said it a little bit humorously, but but truthfully, it, it weighs on me. I want to have something that outlasts me in my care for Clara as she, as she grows. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking many of you might have something similar where there are things that you're invested in that you want to see outlast you, things that you want to invest in for the long haul. And maybe that, maybe that is your own kids, or maybe that's something, you, a project you have at work, or maybe it's something that you've built or that you've created. Um, but there's these things that we want to last for the long haul, even when we're gone. And I bring up this tension because I think this is the tension that the Apostle Paul is wrestling with in our text this morning. He's wrestling with the mission, and how does it last for the long haul, even after he's gone? So I'd love to kind of dive in and and explore some of that this morning. But before we do, would you pray with me? Father, I confess my own inadequacy to do the work which outlasts me. Yet I thank you for your Holy Spirit who leads and who guides and who equips. May your spirit be at work this morning, softening our hearts speaking through your words so that we might have changed hearts, changed minds, and changed lives. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 14. We're going to be spending some time there in Acts chapter 14. Um, And what you need to know is last week's passage on Acts chapter 13 and this week's passage on Acts chapter 14 are part of the same story, right? In fact, uh, what Nathan read for you um, is going to sound very familiar. Uh, Nathan preached last week that we are sent. Paul was sent, and we are also sent. And we are sent to do four things. We're sent to proclaim the truth. We're sent to opposition. We're sent to persuade. And we're sent with joy. And hopefully what was even read for you this morning, you just you noticed those themes. Uh, Paul came to the church in, in 14, 1-7, and he proclaimed the truth, verse 1. He was met with opposition, verse 2, and yet joyfully he stays to persuade the people of the truth, verses 3, and then eventually he's forced to leave due to the persecution that follows um, the following verses. So hopefully you see continued those themes going on. Um, But what I want to notice is that Paul leaves the city of Iconium, and I got a map up there. It might be a little little hard to see all the words, but top right left, you can see like the Asia and then Antioch, and go down a little bit to your right, underneath Galatia, there's Iconium. And that's where Paul was, and now he just traveled to Lystra, and Lystra's 100 miles away. And the reason I bring up that map and show you where he is in the midst of his journey is um, this is the first time that Paul is um, encountering a completely Gentile audience. Remember the the, he's been going out on mission, and he's been going to the Jewish synagogues first, and there's been Jews and people who have kind of known the message, but now he's going to a completely Gentile audience. And so that's where our story picks up in verse 8, and where I want to dive in a little bit deeper. Would you uh, begin reading with me in verse eight? Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, "Stand upright on your feet." And he sprang up and began walking. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, "I think I've heard this story before," well, you're right. Uh, Jesus did this in Luke chapter 15, and uh, the Apostle Peter did this in Acts chapter 3, and now we have the Apostle Paul doing this here in Acts chapter 14. And it's kind of like, okay, Luke, why repeat the story? Luke, the author, why repeat this story? And what you need to understand is what, what Luke is trying to communicate is that there is the same power and the same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead and allowed Jesus to perform miracles, was alive and at work, and Peter, for him to perform and do miracles, is now alive and at work through the Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit is at work to go about and change the world. That's what we're seeing and it's, it's the command um, from the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations and then even again repeated in Acts chapter 1-8, where um, it says, go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the world. Well, we're in our text and we're watching as the people are sent and they're leaving Jerusalem, leaving Judea, leaving Samaria. Now they're approaching the ends of the world from, from their known world at the time. Like the, the message is going forth and it's being faced with opposition as Nathan said, will it be able to go forth? And what we need to see is that the spirit of God is fulfilling the work of God and that nothing can stop that mission. But you also might be wondering, okay, I get then why this story is repeated, power through the spirit. Okay. Why miracles? Why? I mean, miracles are that part of the Bible that's sometimes hard to believe. Like, can we like show the power of the spirit a different way? But what we need to understand is about that culture, that time, what's going on. And in their culture, having a miracle is showing that there is power and there is authority behind the person, right? So what we need to know is that the authority and the power are at work behind the Apostle Paul. People see the miracle performed and they say, okay, we can listen to what he's saying because there is power, there is authority here. So these miracles serve a purpose. So with that in mind, let's keep reading, starting in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was their chief speaker. Not gonna lie, it'd be kind of nice to be confused for a god for a little bit, right? Okay, wait, maybe not. That's a little vain. I don't think that was Paul's response. Maybe Paul's response was more of, uh, seriously? I just healed the guy. I'm the one to perform the miracle. And I'm Hermes and my friend gets to be Zeus? Come on, guys. What's the guy got to do? Well, maybe that's, maybe that's what I, how I would have responded. It doesn't seem like that's actually how Paul responds. It, when we think about it, though, it's kind of a weird thing. Like you perform a miracle, and when Jesus and when Peter perform these miracles, you know, they had a different reaction. Here we have this audience and they're saying, Oh, they must be gods. How do they get to that conclusion? And there's a couple things about their history and their background that might help us. First is that they are a, um, they're a polytheistic country they're of, of beliefs. Right? They believe in many gods. And the gods that they believe in are um, the gods that we learned about in our Western Civ class. Right? So here they are. They believe in many gods. But the other thing is they, their worship of gods was pervasive. And what I mean by pervasive is that it influenced every area of their life. There was no separation of religion and then everything else. Like what the, who they worshipped and their gods influenced everything. Like whether or not they were, did uh, well in work and their work received benefit was whether or not the gods were happy with them, which was based on whether or not they sacrificed to the gods. Uh, they probably had their kids' birthday party in the temple of the gods. Like all of life was wrapped up around their worship of these gods. Uh, there was no... Separation, like we have today, or that we think that we have today, and the other thing you need to understand is that the Roman poet, there's a Roman poet named Ovid, or Ovid, and he um, he records a story which sheds some light on this. He records a story of two gods. Um, who came down in the likeness of men in order to see the city of Lystra, the very city that Paul is at, and to see if it was as bad as they had heard. Sound familiar to anyone like Genesis? Okay, I digress. But they come down, they're exploring the city, and they, they find it is, it's terrible, and there's no hospitality. And as they're leaving the city and getting ready to destroy it, on the outskirts of the city, they find this sweet old couple. And this old couple is very poor, and they welcome the, the two gods into their home, and they show hospitality. And the gods, as a result of this act of hospitality, change their mind. And they promise to grant, not destroy the city, and to grant this couple with a wish. And it's kind of sweet. They wish that they would um, die at the same time so they wouldn't have to live without each other, right? Aw, okay. And then the other thing they do is they ask to be a priest and priestess in the, in the temple of Zeus. Okay, so with that background in mind, maybe it makes a little bit more sense why the people respond, oh, We're not getting fooled again. Here are the gods. We're going to worship them. We're going to do what we're supposed to do. We're going to show hospitality. We're not going to have our city wiped out, right? In fact, they even have a a temple to Zeus at the outskirts of their city. Look at verse 13. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple is at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Right? So they're, they're getting ready to do what they're supposed to do. They saw power. They rightly associated this power with, with divinity. The problem is they're thinking of the wrong divinity. But they're going in, and it takes Paul and Barnabas a little while to figure out what's going on. The crowd's kind of in uproar. They don't really understand. And again, the reason for that is because the people shouted in right, a different language than what they had been speaking to them in. And after a little bit, though, they figure out what's going on, Paul and Barnabas do, and they have an extreme but proper reaction. Look at verses 14 through 17. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul and Barnabas immediately stop the people, right? The people of Lystra, again, were doing what should have been expected. They saw power. They associate with, with with a God. But again, it was the wrong God. They were blind to the truth. So Paul, sent to proclaim the truth, does just that. He tells them that they're worshiping false gods and that their gods are vain or rubbish. They need to turn from their dead and worthless idols to the one true and living God. He essentially calls their entire theological system and way of life stupid, right? Sheesh, Paul. Where's the cultural sensitivity, right? Right? But no, he's, he's bold. He believes there's too much at stake to not proclaim the truth. They're believing a lie. So yet despite this bold proclamation of truth, the text tells us in verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from sacrificing to them. Now it might be easy for some of us to hear about these people from Lystra and think, well, that was a time so long ago and those people, they're old and they're, they're ancient and they're, they're ignorant they're like, they didn't know any better. But realize for a second the enormity of what's occurring and what's going on. I mean, their entire worldview, their culture, their way of life, everything is being confronted by the gospel. Everything they believe, the gospel is saying there's, they're living a lie and that there is a better way. And they had to confront and come to the realization that everything they believed is, is wrong, right? So that's what's hitting them. And maybe even think about, our own cultural traditions and beliefs, right? I mean, think for a moment, someone came to us and said, yeah, Christmas, Thanksgiving, 4th of July, everything that you believe, your entire way of life, like what you do, it's wrong, you're stupid, and you need to do something different. Like that'd be really hard to receive and to think about doing it differently. But what I wanna argue is that our own cultural traditions and beliefs are also confronted with the gospel, right? While our beliefs don't often look the same as they might have to to them in their time period, we do live in an age of practical atheism. God's fine for us on Sunday and for church, but he certainly shouldn't change the way that I work or the way that I go to school or the way I use technology or what I save for or spend money on or live for or die for, right? God, God should have no part in that. But you see, we spend so much of our time saying that we believe in God Yet we mindlessly pursue vain and worthless idols, things of of what the world would define as for sex and for money, success and power, security, just like everyone else. You see, the gospel is contrary to what the world tells us to believe. And the gospel demands a renouncing of that and a radical turn to Jesus to give him our allegiance. So let me pause for just a moment and let us even consider a few questions for us. For instance, what are the idols in your life that you seek to pursue? Are you aware of them? And if you are aware of what those idols are, in what ways do you ignore your allegiance to God and pursue whatever it is you want? Are you willing to trade those things and follow Jesus? My assumption is that before we're too hard on the people of Lystra, we should take a look in the mirror because the gospel is truth, but that truth isn't always what we wanna hear. And sadly, for many of the people of Lystra, they felt the same way. They didn't want the truth. Some believed, but others didn't. They follow the same pattern that Nathan told us about. Paul was sent to proclaim the truth, and yet Paul was also sent to face opposition. Let's read verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, the cities that Paul had previously been in, a hundred miles to get to Lystra, and having persuaded crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Wait a minute. Paul, this isn't how it's supposed to work. I mean, I know you're passionate about this, but you were going to show us how we should build for something for the long haul. Like, you were set on mission. Like, what's going on? Why is Paul here? Springs up the questions I had at the beginning, some of those tensions of wanting my work to last for the long haul, of Paul wanting to build something that would outlast him, right? Today's story was supposed to help us know how to do that, but right now it doesn't look like it's helping. And what I would like to say is that here is where the story turns. Here's where we s- see a shift. And I believe that there's where Paul starts to shed light on his plan, where he shows how what he's doing is being built to care for the long haul, there's three things that I think Paul displays. The first is, those who build for the long haul multiply disciples. Those who build for the long haul multiply disciples. We see here and in the following verses that the proclamation of the gospel, though it faces opposition, the word of God does not return void. Right? There are people who believe in the gospel. There are disciples. Look at verse 20. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. Now, obviously, we do have the miracle that Paul is still alive. No, I don't think he rose from the dead because the verse made it clear that he, they assumed he was dead. So I don't think he was. But there is still the miracle that he's able to get up, meet with the disciples, go into the city, like keep walking, and the next day travel even to Derby. So there's, there is a miracle here. But what I really want to focus on is the miracle that there are people who have believed, that there are disciples. It was only Paul and Barnabas at this point on the trip. And they come down there, and so that when we see these, the disciples in this verse, we know that these are converts from Lystra. These are people who have heard the word proclaimed and believe. Further proof, God's word does not return void. Now notice that the following verses, verses, uh, they give us more explanation and information about how Paul multiplies these disciples. Let's keep reading. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter The kingdom of God. I hope you're seeing many of the themes that Nathan and I were trying to discuss even throughout the book of Acts that are here. But what I especially want to highlight is that his return. Look again at the map with me. So he came down to Derby. That's where he is now. He's making more disciples. And his end goal is get back to the Antioch on the far right. Antioch of Seleucia. That's the sending church. The church that sent him out on his missionary journey as it's often called. So he wants to get back there. And to me, the easiest course of action is to go through Tarsus and then get right back going to your right. And Tarsus just so happens to be his hometown. Like he could go there, get a home-cooked meal, like see his friends and family, and then travel over to Antioch, like a lot shorter. But no, Paul doesn't do that. Paul goes back to Lystra, where they just tried to kill him, and to Iconium, where they tried to kill him, and to Antioch, where people traveled to kill him. And he goes all the way back, and he's going to go back to the same churches he was just at. Why would Paul do that? I mean, it added weeks, if not months, to his journey. What is so important to Paul? Why would he go back? And the verse tells us he did it to strengthen the souls of the disciples, to remind them suffering is part of the faith. I think most importantly, Paul's on mission. He knows that he must do this, go about the mission, because he is sent. And it's going to make more sense here in a moment with the next things he does. But he is, he's on mission and I think that that mission that Paul has um, is the same mission that all of us who pledge our allegiance to Jesus have. We are all sent. We're sent to be disciples that make disciples. And this is the purpose of both the church gathered here on a Sunday morning and the church scattered as we go about. And actually, this is the mission statement of Christ's community. Reed mentioned it this morning as he, as he was giving the introduction. Christ community says, we desire to be a caring family multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. You see, we don't think that this, uh, our mission statement at Christ Community, we don't think it's original, nor do we think it's optional. Rather, we think it's modeled after the command of Jesus and the example of the apostles. Just like Paul, we desire to be in it for the long haul. We want our work to matter and to continue past our earthly existence. Therefore, we build for the long haul by multiplying disciples. But this isn't the only thing that Paul's doing by returning to those other cities. Paul's doing something else. The second thing we see Paul, do, Paul doing is that those who build for the long haul multiply leaders. Those who build for the long haul multiply leaders. Leaders. Up until this point in the story, it seems like most of the work has been to make disciples, and he's done that through the proclamation of truth of the gospel, and Paul's going back through these cities now, and he's doing something else. He's multiplying leaders. How? By appointing elders. Let's look at the verse, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, Paul knew that if he went to just one city in the proclamation of the gospel as he was sent, then the word wouldn't go out. He had to leave that city. But if he leaves that city, what's to keep, after he leaves, what's to keep the people from going astray? An entirely different culture, entirely different worldview, and the people are facing persecution. Why would they continue in this? Paul knows there must be leadership there to help them continue in the faith. You see, Paul. that's why Paul goes back. He goes back to appoint these leaders. And these leaders, these elders, are to care for the church, equip the church, help them amidst amidst their, their journey, help them amidst the mission. These leaders were to care for the local church. And that last sentence is what brings us to our third point. Those who build for the long haul multiply churches. Those who build for the long haul multiply churches. Paul realizes that the best way to build something that's going to last for the long haul is to build something that will outlast him. He needs an institution to care for these disciples and to act as a catalyst that will help others make disciples, make leaders, and make churches. Paul establishes the church because he believes that the local church is God's plan A for the mission of how to reach the world. And because Paul knows that if you want to build something for the long haul, you have to build something that outlasts yourself. Therefore, Paul establishes an institution. And boy, we love that word institution, don't we? (laughs) But it's been said, without individuals, nothing nothing will get done. Without institutions, nothing will last. To maybe help us elaborate on this a little bit further, I wanna watch a short little video from Andy Crouch. Let's watch.
2: That's, I think, what institutions are meant to be. Now, this is—I mean, this is not a topic people uh, like to identify with. Uh, I think people don't want to be institutional. You know, people will say, "Well, I, I'm spiritual, but I don't like institutional religion." Um, you know, institutionalized—we say if someone's institutionalized, that's not a good thing. <laughs> that's, no. that, sounds, that does not sound like flourishing. Um, But I think the biblical mindset is there is no real shalom unless your children's children inherit it. There's this amazing language of generations in the Hebrew Bible in particular. And I think it's very interesting that the people of God are called the family, not just of Abraham or Abraham and Sarah, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's three generations before that kind of pattern of the people of God is established in the world. So I want, I want us to think about using our power in ways that would last at least to our children's children.
1: Yeah, I love how he talks about things lasting past you, like things that outlast you. And then I also uh, love how he points out that we don't like to talk about the institution of the church, right? Institution tends to be a bad word we don't like to associate with. But if you think about it for a moment, it's exactly because of the institution of the church that we are all sitting here today, right? Over 2,000 years ago, 7,000 miles away, one man changed the world. But why are we sitting here? And why do we know about it? Because of the institution of the local church. Even think about the Apostle Paul, who's been dead for 2,000 years, but yet the church still remains. This fits with the tension that I brought up at the beginning. How do I care for Claire in the long haul? Paul wanted to make sure that his little baby, the mission that he was given to by God, that it would last. And what was his plan to do that? The local church. Something that would outlast him and care for the mission even after he was gone. But now you might be wondering, yeah, but but doesn't the church, like, isn't it just about like saving souls? And I would argue with you that that is an incomplete understanding of what the church is and what the church does. Yes, the church does seek individual transformation. But the church also seeks cultural transformation. Both of those areas are needed for a complete understanding of what the church does. The church changes individual lives, but the church also changes communities. I'm not the only one alone in thinking this. There's many people who would argue that one of the strategic ways to reach people is proclamation of the gospel and to transform communities, and how you do that is the local church. Raj Chetty is one of them. He's a professor of economics at Harvard. He argues that the key for the renewal of communities struggling with bad jobs, bad schools, and bad neighborhoods is to have good local churches. I mean, think about this for a moment. Here's a guy, a professor of economics at Harvard, And he's thinking that the church is the answer to these economic problems. And I think he's right. The flourishing of the local church leads to the flourishing of the city, which leads to the flourishing of the community and the culture. That's why it's so important that we have an institution of the local church. Because yes, the local church cares for the needs of the individual and the culture. And also because the institution of the church is going to last for the long haul. It's going to be around when we're gone. Now if you paid uh, close attention to these three multipliers, multiplying disciples, leaders, and churches, you might have noticed that it's actually the same three multipliers of Christ's community, part part of our mission, part of our core values, and you can find these on our webpage. But honestly, it's why the Olathe campus exists here today. 30 years ago, Christ Community started as a church plant in in Leewood, And then Leewood helped church plant Olathe. And Olathe helped church plant Shawnee Mission. And then church plant at Brookside and downtown. And even Reed mentioned this morning all the work that we're doing in planting churches around the world with our mission partners. We truly believe that the local church is the hope of the world. And that planting churches is part of how we restore all things. And also, this is part of why I'm standing here today. Nathan mentioned it with the, with the multiplication of leaders. Because of your generosity and your commitment to the mission, I have the opportunity to be here. Thank you for that. And finally, you see that Christ's community does all this to, to fulfill the command from Jesus of the Great Commission. The church seeks to make disciples because we are sent. But notice this sent language. It's not just about the church on a Sunday morning. Right, right? Church, the church is not just a Sunday morning gathered together. Yes, we do that to be strengthened, to encourage, to worship together. But the church is also the church scattered. You are the church. And your mission is to make disciples wherever you are, because you are sent into this world around us. Not only are you sent, but you're sent for the long haul. And because we're sent for the long haul, I want to leave you with this, with this mission and, and, and continue to talk about the awesome privilege that we have of being sent. But how are we going to do that? Well, we need, if we're going to be sent for the long haul, we need the local church. We need the the institution of that. So I want to challenge you with just a few, a few next steps that you might be, might consider taking. The first is for some of you, you need to surrender your life to the true and the living God. Quit following after your dumb, dead, and worthless idols. Surrender your allegiance to Jesus. For others of you, you need to buy into making your work count for the long haul. And how do you do that? How do you invest in something that will outlast you? By the three multipliers. Multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Let me ask you a few diagnostic questions to kind of help us see where we're at. Do your coworkers or classmates, do they know that you're a follower of Christ? Do your coworkers and families see you living for things that matter, or chasing after the things that the world might define as success? Are you invested in the lives of leaders? Maybe that's the lives of kids here at this church, or maybe your own kids, Or maybe you're invested in someone to stage behind you at work or in school? wherever that might be, or do you have fine people and seek to mentor them, to help them grow, to help them be established as leaders? Are you committed to the local church? Do you attend regularly? Are you a committed member? Do you serve faithfully? Do you give sacrificially? And for some of you, the answer to all those questions was yes. And here I want to challenge you to keep going Don't give up. Don't lose sight of the goal. Don't lose sight of the mission. Continue believing and to continue to persevere in the faith, remembering that your work is a part of restoring all things for the glory of God. We are sent. We are sent for the long haul. Join in on the mission of the church. I want to close our time together with this tangible reminder of what the church is about. We exist for the long haul. We aren't going anywhere And we do this through the multiplication of disciples, the multiplication of leaders, and the multiplication of churches.
3: Amen, you guys can have a seat. Uh, For those of you who haven't had the chance of meeting, my name's Ryan Deeker, and uh, I have the privilege of serving on our elder leadership team here at Christ Community. Uh, My wife, Nikki, and our family have called Christ Community home for for the past 11 years. Um, And one of the things, that we love about Christ Community is that we are in it for the long haul. As Johnny Neef, I'm sorry, I can't do it. It's Jonathan, Um, I tried. Um, But no, as Jonathan talked about this morning, One of the things that we have been focused on from the very beginning of Christ Community is building an institution that is in it for the long haul. And one of the ways that we do that is, um, from the very very beginning, um, the elder leadership team instituted a sabbatical policy for our pastors and directors. Um, And the concept of a sabbatical um, really is founded in the biblical concept of Sabbath, um, that God both demonstrated in Genesis, but also commanded in Exodus. Um, And we see this as a chance for renewal, um, both for um, our pastors and leaders, um, as well as our congregations. Uh, And so um, both our church, as well as academia, as well as some businesses have um, sabbatical policies in place. Um, So practically, what does this look like for for Christ's community? Um, Our leaders uh, have the chance to have a sabbatical after the first five years, and then um, subsequently after every seven years after that. Um, and so what this means is there's enough gray hair in Nathan's beard um, that he's made it to sabbatical number two. Um, and so um, w- with that, I would ask um, kind of uh, Nathan and Kelly and David and Eden to come up and join me um, on, on stage here. Um, one of the things that we uh, believe about sabbaticals is that it's not, it's not a privilege, it's not a reward. Um, it's a chance for us to invest in our leaders. Um, I don't know if you guys realize this, but on average in the U.S., pastors stay at churches about two to three years, Um, so Nathan, you're four to six times above average, Um, so um, don't don't ever let you tell differently, that's right, Um, so practically, what does this mean? Um, We've got one more week, Um, so uh, these guys will be with us again next week, but starting about I don't know 10 minutes from now a week from today um, they'll be on sabbatical um, and they'll be back October 1st Um, so it's a long time um, but we have an awesome team in place here with Patrick and Reed uh, and the team both in Olathe as well as as churchwide here at Christ Community so um, if you uh, if you have Nathan's email um, it'll be shut off until October 1st. If you have his cell phone number, don't text him until October 1st. Um, he won't reply, um, but we want to give uh, them a chance both as a family, as a couple, um, and, as, and for Nathan as a leader um, to refresh, to renew, um, to grow, and to come back energized for, for the next seven years so that by the third time that gri- full gray beard is in place. Um, so. With that, um, I would love um, to ask that you guys, if you have a chance, drop them a note this week of encouragement, um, and then over the next three months, um, pray for them as family, um, as a couple, um, and as leaders. Um, so let's do that right now. Let's pray for them. Um, if you join me in prayer. Father, I thank you um, so much for, for the Millers, for, for Nathan and his leadership Um, both for Olathe and for Christ's community um, as a whole? Um, Or do we pray for Nathan and Kelly and their marriage, that you would take the next three months to strengthen and renew um, their friendship um, and their relationship? And we pray uh, for David and Eden, that they would have a a wonderful time over the next three months with their parents, um, that they could grow together as a family. It's in your name I pray. Amen. As we stand for the benediction, would you uh, join me in thanking them again for everything that they do for us? All right, that's enough. No. Uh, One thing that I didn't do, Eden did ask me to ask Nathan to do his sabbatical dance. Um, So you can ask him about that later. Um, I'm not sure what that exactly means, um, but um, all right, let's, let's have a benediction. Uh, now as you go into all the places that God has called you, may you embrace the rhythms of work and rest, always finding rest in God, and as Paul says in Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.